Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Given that markets have really reversed themselves this year, they've been a little bit all over the place, many short-term investors have suddenly found themselves thinking a little bit more about the long term, let's put it that way, when it comes to building and maintaining a portfolio. And a lot of us are going back to basics and thinking about how we construct things that are going to be around for a long time and that we want to have our money in for a long time. But it's hard to ignore the trends and it's very hard to know which trends are will change our lives and which ones are just going to blow up your capital. A lot of investors are clearly trying to pick through those challenges at the present time. Today I'm speaking with Justin Walsh from Morningstar, who has recently conducted some research about the trends of the past and what they might be able to tell us about the trends of today, certainly as it relates to your investment portfolio. Justin, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Gemma. So Justin... You presented what we're going to talk about today at a conference some months ago now. COVID gets in the way of many things. Uh, It was a fascinating conference, but your research really stood out of all the sessions. I found it absolutely fascinating. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and the research that you do first so people can understand why you would spend your time researching ETFs back in the deep, dark days and how you came to be doing it? Sure. Uh, Okay. My name's Justin Walsh uh, and I work at Morningstar. So we're a global listed organisation and we do a number of things. We're a global uh, collector and provider of data across the investment management industry, but we also do a lot of research and that's where I fit in. We research managed funds, ETFs and stocks. Uh, And another part of our group also runs portfolios for clients as well. So we're very large. We build a lot of products and tools to help investors make what we hope are better investment decisions overall. So I work, as I said, in the managed fund division, and we research managed funds and we research ETFs. And the paper that you uh, referred to uh, is a global paper that we did. We call it a landscape report, looking at thematic funds across the world. And one thing I would say right at the outset to bear in mind is is that a lot of the trends that you see across the investment management industry, a lot of the trends that individual investors are interested in, are often global trends. And it's not just in Australia where we see this, but it's across the world. So uh, there was a paper that we did. uh, It came out of our head office in Chicago and all the other offices contributed to that. Uh, and I'd helped uh, a bit with the with the local version and, and seeing what the application was in our local market. And what we were looking at in this paper is themes. So we looked at themes. I adapted the paper so it was more looking at themes and ETFs, but it was also across the board looking at th- funds. So what's a theme? So these themes are investment ideas where you're seeking to build a portfolio to capture something. It might be something about water, the environment, It might be something that's been very trendy or not so trendy of late, crypto, all these different elements that come together. And what we did is that we were looking at themes uh, in terms of how far across the investment universe they were and then looking at them through time and what had happened with that. And we had some very interesting findings that came out of that. That's such a good introduction because it is so challenging for investors to see in the world things that they want to invest in, they want to participate in. It's very clear the trends 
in many cases, that look exciting. It was interesting you mentioned crypto, right? So people are super excited uh, about decentralised finance, whatever it might be, right? And this is the thing I definitely want to be on board with. How the hell do I find the right investment opportunity that is attached to that theme? One of the ones I find fascinating is lithium, right? Everyone's buying lithium stocks at the moment. And they're not just buying it because they're lithium miners or lithium hopefuls in many cases, but because they're attaching it to a broader theme around decarbonisation and so on and they know that it's growing like nobody's business, but they're trying to find a way to ride the coattails of that particular theme or that particular trend. So now this research is about thematic portfolios and clearly when you're looking at a theme – particularly if you're investing in a portfolio, you're not buying a stock, right? So you're not going, I have picked the winner in this sector. In the online commerce sector, I'm not going to pick the Amazon. I'm just going to go after online commerce in general, let's say. How did you come to pick the topic? This whole thing with themes is really interesting. Um, How do you find a theme? How do you pick a topic? Themes have been with us. We actually went back and realised there was a fund that was launched in 1948, which was the Television Fund. So as you can see, when new technology comes on board, and it's often around technology or changing consumption habits, that it captures people's imagination. And we live in a world of marketing, so people very intelligently say, here's something that's changing our lives, how can we actually take advantage of that? And if you work in the funds management field, it often is, let's see if we can create a fund. Let's see if there's somewhere that we can exploit this. So the television fund was the first. And it was really interesting because that was in a fairly unsophisticated time for managed funds or mutual funds as they were referred to in the US. So that shows that what do they say? Nothing's old? It's all new? <laughs> well, nothing's new, it's all old. And that is a really pivotal thing to bear in mind is that people have often developed these ideas to chase ideas. Um, and that television fund, I don't know how long it went for, uh, but it did go for quite some time overall and then fizzled out as the theme that it was tracking changed. It broadened its invested universe, that changed as well. So what we tend to find uh, with these things is is that the idea of having a theme makes sense, it resonates. But the trouble is that they could often be very narrow or really part, a minor part of what could be a broader theme. So lithium would be a good example of that. It's a component in batteries, so that's important. But there are other components as well. So how do you capture the whole part of that theme, understanding that technology may change and lithium may not be the be-all and end-all of rare earth materials that you need going forward. It's a challenge. And it's very much a challenge to try at the start of something to see where it might end up. And there's a fabulous story about this. Uh, We did some work looking at probably one of the biggest bubbles that we've been in, which is what was referred to as the technology boom and crash around the 2000s. Um, And what we found... Uh, when we looked at that, because that was part of the thinking in this landscape report, we've been looking at trends in behaviour and fund launches, et cetera, uh, and in parts of the markets that get bubbles in them. And what had happened is is that a lot of the funds that had been around uh, at the time of that technology boom ended up going out of business. But that theme of technology was a good theme. It just took a very long time to come about. 
a very, very long time that came to come about. The whole idea that the internet would change our lives, that we would be able to do so many things digitally, uh, that consumer behaviour would change quite dramatically, has all come to pass. The trouble is, is that from about 98 to, I think it was about February, March 2000, that was the place to be. And there was a lot of irrational behaviour. You needed an idea, not actually revenue or profits or things like that to be successful. And then somebody woke up and realised the emperor had no clothes and there was a huge revision. And what we saw was the NASDAQ crashed and took quite some time to get back to the highs that it had. So that's why we always have a cautionary word to say about themes and investing is that these are long-term trends and you need to be, one, well diversified and, two, be thoughtful about where you invest. This is this is super interesting, right? So very frequently on this podcast and when we're talking to investors in articles and the various other ways we communicate, we talk about the tech wreck. It's sort of the archetypal example, right, <laughs> where clearly everyone was chasing one big, very important idea, as you say, like it did change our lives. Everyone blew up their money. And it's been hard for people who've started investing any time since about 2009 to understand that you can overpay for something, blow it up massively, and it still actually be a decent company. You just paid too much for it and it'll take you forever to make your money back. So we use the tech wreck as an example all the time, but I love your television fund story because it shows you how many times through history we've done this. So you can tell us about the research the different types of themes you looked at, how the portfolios came to be and what happened to them? Because this is the interesting bit, right? What happened to them? Sure. So we have done a number of what we call these global landscape reports, looking at particular parts of the universe. And we last did one a couple of years ago. So what we tend to do is is that we revisit them and we looked at a whole lot of thematic funds across the world. And we broke up the themes into another of different components and sub-themes overall. Just try and classify them because traditionally you classify funds as an Australian equity fund, a North American equity fund, a European equity fund, a global equity fund. But this was looking at funds that cut the universe in a different manner and really cut it via sector, cut it via a theme, cut it by a practical application. And we had four broad areas that we looked at. One was technology, another one was looking at the physical world, social themes, uh, or broadly thematic. You know, these are funds that are trying to pick up a mega theme. So it might have to do with consumer behaviour, for example. Um, so what we did is, is that we looked across all those um, countries where we have our data, and that's basically every country that has listed markets, and we looked at the behaviour and the performance and the success of these funds. And there was a couple of observations that we made. Um, one is is that um, fund launches is very much dictated by whether you're in a bull market, an upward trending market uh, position. That was really important. Um, so the higher the market rises, the more people want to get on board with interesting ideas. That's the first thing. This, uh, the, the other very interesting thing that we found is that a lot of these fund launches really weren't that successful. A lot of them fail to reach more than 100 million in size. And this is looking at both unlisted funds or managed funds, mutual funds as they're called in the US, and ETFs. And then out of that, 
was an interesting observation is, is that what you often see in any universe where you have listed or unlisted funds, something called survivorship bias, which tilts the data. And what we found is, is that if you stretch back, look back a long time, say 20 years, you will often find that of all those funds that have been in existence over that time, and did a number count of them, you can find somewhere between 10 to 20% are still alive today. So what that means is, is that it's a bit like, as people say, you know, throwing darts on a board. People have ideas and they keep throwing the dart and hoping they'll land the bullseye. And sometimes they do, oftentimes they don't. That failure rate is huge. Yeah. That's extraordinary. It is. And that's what we find more and more when you're looking at things that are trying to cut the market in more esoteric ways. It may resonate for a while, but the question is, is that does it have, is it a long-term a good idea? Does it make sense? Or is it something that will be caught up as we've seen in the current market turmoil when conditions are benign, it looks pretty good. And as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, we see who's swimming naked. So with that, did you look at why they failed? Did they fail because they just didn't attract enough investors? Or yeah. did they fail because they lost so much money everyone redeemed? Well... A bit of both. It's, it, it's multiple reasons. I mean, if you are able to take in funds it's very rare that people will close a fund, full stop. So if it's got success, there is no reason to close, unless the only occasion where that may happen is, is where there's takeovers, where one parent gets, you know, one organisation gets taken over by another and they do a consolidation of funds. But that you don't tend to close things that are raising money and going well. So success is very important. Investor appetite is another uh, I would dare say that in 99, it was very easy to go out and sell a technology fund. Late 2000, 2001, it was very, very difficult. So what does, you know, these things aren't cheap to run. They cost money. You need a certain economy of scale for it to make sense. And if you bought in or the fund invested at inflated asset prices, and we've had a significant drop in those asset prices, then you could find what was profitable becomes uneconomic. So that's a very important consideration as well. And then the public imagination drifts. So what sounded like a great idea some years later is old hat and doesn't really grab investors' attention. So they were some of the reasons that we saw uh, Overall, but I but I agree with you. I think the striking thing is is that there's a bit of fear of missing out, and then in hindsight, it's well, I didn't really need to be there anyway, did I? The bit that worries me is the fund managers have the fear of missing out, and they're the ones rushing out to list funds at the top of the market, and you feel that perhaps they would be educated and mature enough to avoid that temptation, but clearly not. Well, what we're finding today. Uh, more and more, and look, there's some. There, there are definitely some worthy launches that have been made. Um, is with the rise of ETFs, what it means is there's a much wider audience that can invest. So that's that's important. Then it means individual investors can make their own decisions more freely, and they can get great diversification by buying ETFs. And unfortunately, a lot of people tend to think that the large ETF providers that provide 
index ETFs, say for global equities or Australian equities, is a little bit boring. <laughs> and they like to do something interesting so when they're at the dinner party, they can talk about their investments and what they're doing. Uh, and that provides a very fertile ground for people to launch index ETFs that track particular indices, that track a narrow range of the market. So it might be rare earth miners might be one. It might be those that provide electric cars. And you might find some of these uh, providers might only have constituents, that means number of stocks, 20, 30, 40. So you get a very, very narrow field. And what you find is the correlation between those individual constituents. So correlation basically being is how they influence each other in movements. If the market goes up, they all tend to go up. If the market goes down, they all tend to go down. Uh, so they're strongly correlated with certain factors. What can happen from that is that you've got something that sounds great on paper, but you actually find you've got very poor diversification. When a shock comes, there's only one way that goes, and that tends to be south. It all blows up in one go. It can as well. It can, absolutely. And look, I think we've seen this with a lot of the interest around crypto, a lot of the, the uh, interest around technology stocks and around certain um, technology ETFs. Uh, we've seen it, say, in the US, ARK Innovation, which we've never had a high regard for in terms of how it was done. It was basically a momentum follower in many mm. ways, and that has been rapidly brought down to earth. And it was interesting, we did some research on that one, because this is also an interesting fact, is that very few investors actually invested at the right time and enjoyed all the highs. Mm. So this was a ETF uh, listed in the US that did incredibly well you know, over about an 18-month period when it really captured a lot of the technology boom. But when you actually looked at the size and when people invested, you actually found that most of them had invested after or towards the end of its great run. And basically the majority of people only got the downside of the uh, roller coaster. Yeah, that one's quite an awful story. Cathy uh, Wood is the manager of that fund and developed an incredibly high profile almost out of nowhere. What felt like it uh, when you when you think you know sort of the the universe of famous faces she came out of nowhere and uh, developed a very high profile very quickly, and then it all fell apart very quickly as well. It's very rapid return to earth, as you say. One of the reasons I want to have this conversation with you is that the average retail investor, when they buy a fund, it tends to be a long-term investment. And by fund, I'm including ETFs, right? Like they're the modern version of managed funds, but they do have some interesting characteristics, not least that you can buy them online, which is amazing. So you can buy them on market. You know, they're highly liquid. You've got all of these great uh, attributes that were not true when you had T plus five for a lot of the managed funds. And also they were quite opaque in that you didn't always know what they were holding and it was quite difficult and all of the, those sorts of things. So ETFs are an extraordinary innovation in that respect from a retail investor's perspective. They're quick and easy to access. They're much less expensive than managed funds used to be. I remember the days of 200 basis points being a reasonable fee for a managed fund. And I found an investing book from the 80s. Don't ask me why I was reading it, but I was, where they said, try try to get a get a a fund with a low loading, which I imagine was an entry fee of less than 8% 
Like imagine paying an 8% entry fee. So you've just invested 92% of what you put in because the other 8% went to the fund manager on day one. Like incredible. So the market's changed a lot. Products are less expensive, much easier to access and so on. But if you're buying a fund, you want to hold it for the long term. And yet your data is telling us, your research is telling us that a lot of them don't make it to the long run. And when you are buying something that feels modern and innovative and will allow you to access this universe of opportunities, you actually might be buying something quite small and narrow, which I find fascinating. Yeah. Look, that's an interesting dilemma that investors have because there's a information asymmetry here because investors actually don't know a lot of things. Um, as you rightly point out, the playing field's being tilted a lot more towards their favour, which is fantastic, and we're very, very, very strong advocates of that. But the challenge is for investors is to understand what they're actually buying. And so we always encourage people to do their own research, which is very important, and also to read all those boring documentation <laughs> you get, PDS statements, I mean, the product disclosure um, statements that you've got are really important to try and understand, for argument's sake, if we're investing in a fund, what's going to buy? What are the rules about what it can do? Is it tracking an index? What can they tell you about that index? What other searches can you do to understand what's going on? One thing that we do find is that there's more and more, as I said earlier, esoteric indices that have been built or put together to track more and more smaller, detailed, sideshow sort of themes that can come through. Um, so you're lacking in diverse, diversification there. So it's really important that you try and understand as much as you can about what you buy. Unfortunately, um, when you live in an open and free democracy, it's buy beware. So it's up to people to inform themselves on this. And there are some safeguards uh, and most um, certainly there are rules around listing, et cetera, which provide um, sensible um, safeguards for investors. But still, it's not a tick of approval. It is not a guarantee that something will succeed. Uh, we have always advocated that by going with well-known large players that have well-diversified um, and well-tracked funds is a really good way to go, particularly if you're starting off on your investment journey. As you uh, become more confident uh, and more sophisticated, well, then obviously it's your choice for what to do uh, on that one. But we do have a, a big word of, of caution, as we were saying earlier. With a lot of these thematic funds, like all fads, Acid wash jeans in the eighties. <laughs> Are they coming back? You know things like that. They, they don't last a lot of the time, and or sometimes you're not patient enough to put up with the pain before you get the reward. A better diversification approach means that you will get some of that. So you will get some of the bad and some of the good, uh, and hopefully overall that will be a good investment outcome for many people. I think that's such. A critical point. I think for also for investors, it's worth noting, right? Punt your heart out on some of this more esoteric, high growth, high risk stuff if it's a small part of your portfolio or if you have a lot of capital 
that you're happy to put at risk. You know, that we have investors who keep a small proportion of their portfolio for the real punts because it's fun. And also because they might like to participate in some of the trends. Certainly a lot of uh, decarbonisation and environmental trends, a lot of investors want to be part of that. It's a, an emotional decision as well as an intellectual one. And you don't have to always put your money in the boring stuff. Feel free to keep some of it for the fun stuff. But the fact that such a small proportion survive tells you that maybe it shouldn't be all of your portfolio. One of the things that I find most interesting is because ETFs have the index providers as well as ETF providers have done such an exceptional job of convincing investors of the merits of indexing just ensuring people understand that there's indexing and there's indexing, right? Buying the S&P 500, which is the largest listed companies, the top 500 largest listed companies in the US is very different to buying. Um, I'm going to give an example and it's in no way indicative of the the quality of this example. It's just the name I remember, right? So if it's done incredibly well, and I think it has. There's one called Robo, for example, which was very much about investing in robotic technology in the US. And we saw people buying this five years ago, but only had a really small number of underlying stocks. And that's fine if it's 1% of your portfolio and just want to take a punt. Also, there's this question of how much you're duplicating what's already in your portfolio. Did you see that as well? A lot of duplication? Yes. Well, that's... You raise a number of really good points there. Um, You're right. People don't like to be boring all the time or sensible. So having a small portion, but you're happy to punt, your call. The thing is, just be in a position where if you lose most of it, you don't lose sleep at night. That's always a big investment test. If I lost a lot overnight, would I be happy? Could I still sleep the next night? That's really important. Um, The other thing I think Australians sometimes uh, are guilty of is the sure thing. And in markets, there are very few sure things. Uh, One of the very few sure things that we know uh, and that has been proven over time in hindsight and hopefully will keep going forward is that diversification is your friend. So if you are in a very well-diversified portfolio, then at the end of the day, you should do well. Now, that hasn't happened over the last six months when we've had bond markets go down and equity <laughs> markets go down, uh, although Australian equities have po- provided a bit of a flaw for us. But that's important. You, know, you, have to, you have to invest for the long term. It's not a short-term game. That's very important. And if you need your money in two or three months' time, it's better off in a bank, which is super boring at the moment given the interest rates they're giving depositors. Oh, it's better than it used to be, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> the number of people who have uh, come up to us and pointed out that getting zero in the bank in the in Europe, you have to pay the bank to hold the money for you, you know? That's it's, right. Uh, I'll take my 1%. It looks amazing compared to a year ago. Yeah, but look, that's very true. That's very true. Uh, but if we, if we think about, you know, indexing, what is indexing? What does it work? Well, it works on a number of levels. What we have is we have a number of globally large providers um, that provide an index. An index can become in all shapes and sizes, but broadly speaking, if we talk about the ASX 200, which is a well-known benchmark, uh, S&P, a large firm, build this index based on market capitalisation. And there's a few rules. So you buy the, the 200 largest stocks 
in the market. The largest stock at the moment is BHP. Second largest, I think from memory, CBA. Don't worry, NAB's in the top 10 as well. <laughs> uh, overall. Just, yeah. <laughs> so what, what, what you're doing is, is that you're buying large stocks in the portfolio. And the good thing why people, a lot of people like to invest uh, in Australia is you get dividends and you get fully frank dividends as well. Uh, and that means that you, you hopefully you're getting capital growth and also you're getting income flowing through and you get some tax advantaged income through the, the franking credits that are attached to dividends uh, that really um, a, a lot of people um, do search, search for, et cetera, with that one. But what an index provider does, it provides an index and it usually balances, rebalances every quarter. It's got a couple of rules uh, it's based on. Uh, but what then happens is there are a number of large fund managers, such as BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, uh, through Spider, um, that use that index and build an index portfolio that will track that measurement. And the advantages of that is is that they do it for a low fee, and because they're good at what they do, they match it very, very closely. Maybe not exactly because we're looking at the, theor- the theoretical versus the practical. There's always a few differences there. But what it does, it gives you a really cost-effective investment and it gives you, if we're looking at the S&P 200 for the ASX, 200 stocks. If we're looking at it in the US, approximately 500 stocks. Love the way you say approximately. <laughs> well, there are rules. Give or take. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things happen in between times as well. So they rebalance. So if we look at the situation at the moment, if Perpetual takes over Pendle, what you'll find is Pendle, if that is successful and goes through as it's planned to do early next year, Pendle will fall off the exchange. And then what will happen is, is that you might have 199 stocks for a couple of weeks and then they'll do a rebalance and what was 201 becomes 200. And also... Down, particularly down the lower end, stocks come in and come out based on their share prices, based on their market capitalisation. But the good thing for an investor is you don't have to worry about those things. And what you tend to find as well is, is that since there's very low turnover in the indices, maybe 5% a year, sometimes less, sometimes a bit more, uh, you're not getting a lot of capital gains coming through. So it's a really efficient vehicle to invest, also providing income. Just to clarify for people, you mean realised capital gains. One of the challenges with fund managers back in the day, uh, and certainly we saw it where funds were unlisted, was they would sell an asset and you would distribute the gains to everyone who was a unit holder, even if they just bought into the fund. So they would get hit with this massive capital gain they had to pay tax on, even though they'd made almost no material capital gain in their holding that was always very upsetting for people, particularly if you had funds that only owned one or two assets like an unlisted property fund. But uh, little anomalies from the industry. Yes. uh, Rightly or wrongly, Australia has some very complicated tax rules. Yeah. So there's not a lot you can do about that overall. So one question I was going to ask is you talk about the ASX 200. Did you find, because you were looking at the Australian data set and then feeding it into the global data set, that there was any difference in Australian funds when you looked at thematics? I imagine we would have fewer of them and they started later, but was there anything unique or different about thematic funds in Australia relative to other countries? Look, the main difference was is most of our thematic funds that we were looking at were more index in flavour. So... We found overseas, particularly in some jurisdictions, that they were far more active. So that means that instead of replicating an index, 
that they would make active decisions about the, the area they would wish to invest and whether they would go overweight, underweight or not hold um, certain stocks. In Australia, we found we, there was very much a trend towards um, exploiting this these themes via indices. That was important. Uh, and I think the other thing that we found, which was interesting as well, which is more of a broader comment, is, is that the penetration of ETFs in our market is much lower than it has been uh, in a, you know, in the US and in Europe. And uh, Canada was another one that we looked at. So the thinking is, is that if we follow trends, and we do tend to follow trends, but not exactly, uh, that we would expect the ETF market to grow, would grow quite significantly. Uh, and we would expect that some of the themes that we're seeing is that the cost consciousness coming through would be very much a part that would continue, which really lends itself to a lot of the um, ETFs, that, ETFs that have been listed being indexed in nature, but a wide gamut of potential indices they could be. It's very interesting, isn't it? We, I find it fascinating the extent to which investors have taken up ETFs, say, three years ago, pre-COVID, when I was looking at our data set. ETFs were only 4% of our value uh, in terms of holdings on NABTRADE and also like 4% of turnover, right? So very small proportion. BHP alone would be dramatically larger than the entire ETF market. Certainly when I looked at the NABTRADE data set and see, yeah, hundreds of thousands of people, right? So it's a decent sized data set. That's doubled and probably more than doubled. I'd probably say it's up 150% in the last two years. And we have seen individual ETFs in our top 10 trades daily, monthly, quarterly, annually now. So when you aggregate them across a particular index, you know, the volume is enormous. So people have absolutely realised that this is an amazing way to invest. And the other thing that's interesting is since the market's fallen and there's been much less trading, people are not interested in trading so much when it's not quite so easy to eke out those gains, there's far more consistent ETF buying. It shows more in the numbers because a lot of other things have fallen away, people are continuing to buy frequently. And you can see it's almost like a regular savings plan for people, a regular investment plan. And it's almost exclusively the ASX 200 in the top 10. And then if you go further out, you'll find the S&P 500 and so on. But people are buying ETFs consistently. And our numbers demonstrate just how clearly people are attached to that. And these are people who are not advised, so they're not getting an advisor to tell them how to construct a portfolio. They've probably read The Barefoot Investor. That's largely where I think it comes from. Lots of other places as well, but definitely The Barefoot Investor's got something to do with it. And they consistently build portfolios using ETFs, which I find fascinating. But why this conversation about thematics is so important, because there is a dramatic difference between the ASX 200 and some of the smaller types of portfolios you were talking about. Oh, absolutely. There certainly are. And that's why we think it's really important that investors arm themselves with the information to help them understand what you buy. And it's, look, I think it's happened all through the investor experience over years. Whenever there's a down market, a bear market, as we call it, then people pull back and rethink and realise that, you know, when things are going up, it looks easy. When things go down, they're painful. And having that balance um, and having that understanding uh, is, is really important. 
You couldn't have said it better. I think you're absolutely right. And we're feeling that strongly from our investors, right? People who had the most joyful time post-COVID where they bought everything they liked at a massive discount and uh, and rode it all the way up but now are finding that it's that it's just not fun anymore that's my what i find most fascinating is most people haven't lost a huge amount of money the ASX 200's only off 6 or 7% for the year like it's not dramatically down if you if you're investing in high quality stocks you've probably received enough in dividends and franking credits to be pretty close to break even but there will be those who holding some things that have had a bit of a rough run, so I'm sorry about that. But uh, for those who are holding sort of broader portfolios or, you know, stuff that's closer to the top 10, the top 20, they are feeling reasonably comfortable at the moment. You guys provide an absolute ton of research and one of the things we're talking about is that the world has changed for retail investors. You can now access stuff that was really only for financial planners and for professionals back in the day, right? You can be an individual member of Morningstar. You can get access to all of this stuff. It's a real blessing for investors to have access to the qualitative research, but also the quantitative research. I come from a quant background and I find it really interesting to go, okay, what does the data tell you? It's all nice to talk to people about what they think, but what is the data telling us and why I found your research so interesting? So how do people find out more about you guys and what you do? Well, go to our website. I would suggest would be the first thing to do. So that's www.morningstar. That's morning and star as one word. <laughs> .com.au. So Morningstar comes from a Walt Whitman poem about the morning star that you see as a guiding light. Um, and look, we provide research on stocks, funds, ETFs, and just a lot of educational articles as well uh, for that we have. Uh, we've got free trials that people can sign up for. And sometime in the fourth quarter, I understand, we'll be doing a revamp of the website. So hopefully it'll be even easier to use. Uh, but not only our website, I think, uh, you know, having access to a lot of the new sites just for information, They uh, the IFR is good. They do lots of interviews with fund managers. I mean, they're quite sympathetic. But it's just in terms of information, I think the more you read, the better it is. Uh, um, there's been some really good um, books written by Jack Bogle uh, who talks about investing and the power of index investing. Um, and look, the biggest thing with investing is the compounding effect. If you compound day after day, year after year, that's where it makes a massive difference overall. So it's a long run, but if you're patient, uh, it has in the past and we expect in the future, but we can't guarantee uh, that it will be a very worthy thing to do. Clearly, we have a lot of investors who have that in mind as they're kind of chipping away at building their portfolios over time. But as you say, the quality of information you have access to now is extraordinary. Uh, NabTrade, I can absolutely guarantee you that 90% of our research and insights pages people don't go to. So please do because they're there and that's, we work very hard on providing them. And it's all there, this amazing stuff. You know, fund managers would have killed for it 20 years ago, right? And now as an individual, you can get it for either a modest cost or for free. It's pretty good. Uh, but as you say, you know, you can read a lot of very sympathetic articles I think you should also sometimes go to the quant and go to the data and the research and that's what you've been doing, which I think is immensely valuable for people to look at what the research tells you over time. Is it telling you that uh, this is the place to be or perhaps not? Justin Walsh from Morningstar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Gemma. Pleasure.
It's always marvellous to talk to you guys. Thank you so much for joining us and for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback. We love your your comments, also your suggestions for new topics. It's always super helpful. So please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.